We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone in Taipei by Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a reported visit to Taiwan by US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, sparking a media frenzy. Well, that before it was postponed due to the coronavirus. Former President Chen Shui-bian possibly violating his medical parole by holding a press event at which he insisted that he's innocent of charges of misusing state funds. A constitutional court striking down a legal clause on indigenous status. And the Council of Agriculture launching a pet management division. But we'll begin with coronavirus concerns once again, which have been heightened this week as the number of domestic cases continue to rise to new highs for the year on a daily basis. Health Minister Chen Shih-jong has said that based on the trajectory of Omicron variant outbreaks in many other countries, it's likely that infections here will peak in a month or two. Chen on Wednesday said the Central Epidemic Command Centre is now evaluating plans to have people with light coronavirus symptoms to quarantine at home if the number of domestic cases continues to rise. And according to the Health Minister, health officials are currently drafting related guidelines, but several major questions still need to be resolved before such a policy can be implemented. Those issues include what conditions a person qualifies as having light symptoms are, and what to do with a person's cohabitants, whether they be one person in a room or a person to a household, etc. there. And the health minister also stressed the questions remain as to how remote healthcare services can be provided on a very large scale. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week did relax quarantine regulations for people confirmed as having come into contact with coronavirus-positive individuals, saying that move is due to the growing number of local infections from unknown sources. Now, people listed as contacts of confirmed cases are previously been ordered to isolate at home in an independent living unit. However, those rules do now not apply to people required to undergo home quarantine and they can now do so in their residence even if they don't live alone. And on Thursday, the Cabinet announced the adoption of a new model for the control of the coronavirus infections. Now, according to Cabinet spokesman Law Bing-Jung, under the new Taiwan model, the government is opting to let go of its goal to achieve zero coronavirus cases, but this doesn't mean allowing the pandemic to go unmanaged. Law says that Premier Su Jing Chung has told cabinet officials that as Taiwan moves towards a new stage of epidemic prevention, he hopes both central and local governments can work together to gradually open the country. The spokesman, though, is also stressing that plans to reopen Taiwan's borders is ongoing, and any such moves will take into consideration the interests of people's livelihoods and the national economic factors. So, Brian, a bunch of rules as the cases rise, but of course heightened public concern, but the government seems to be scrapping its zero coronavirus policy. Yes, I think this would have happened sooner or later because there's no way to keep COVID outside of Taiwan forever. Uh, If you're you're maintaining the entry requirements of 14 days or gradually reducing it, there'll be some way in which people get in. And even with people coming in being quarantined, it might still get out. However, uh, what's interesting then is the government has managed to accomplish this kind of transition and there has not been as much political pushback as I I would have thought. I thought it would have been inevitable to written voices calling for COVID zero and maintaining this indefinitely. But so far, that hasn't as much been the case. Uh, for example, Hoyoi, the new Taipei mayor, and 
uh, Kawanjo, the Taipei mayor, have called for a clear government policy regarding COVID zero or uh, adhering to COVID zero or shifting to coexisting with COVID. And as eventually did happen, there's much eventually more clarity, a willingness to move away. And what's I think noticeable too is compared to last year, there's much less coverage of the outbreaks in the media than there was in the past. It does seem like the public is maybe prepared to move on in some ways. But of course, if cases do develop and grow out of control, one can expect there to be political bloodletting, backlash, and etc. I have to say I'm so gratified that uh, the CDC's command center is now holding up signage that says uh, no magic, just basic. Well, I think it should say just basics instead of just basic uh, without the S. But uh, there's been no magic to what Taiwan has done over the last uh, now two plus years. And we've discussed that many times on your show. There there is uh, fairly tight entry requirements, uh, both for uh, citizens and and foreign residents, and people who are not uh, residents have had great difficulty entering Taiwan. There's uh, quarantine requirements, although they've been relaxed somewhat from the previous more strict regime. And there's a a very effective contact tracing system. So there's been no magic to what Taiwan has done. But as we also discussed many times, on the uh, on the backside of this, as the world is is opening up and has learned to uh, live with COVID, as people like to say, Taiwan has had great difficulty going in that direction. And everything you described in in, in the opening is very indicative of that, that. That they're still discussing a lot of these things internally. We're still discussing how to live at home with COVID instead of going to a, a government-run quarantine or, or hospitals. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they'll get there eventually with, with some of those further relaxations. But now that we're two plus years into the pandemic, and, and there's obviously many, many examples of other locations around the world that, uh, that are dealing with this and opening up, uh, and Taiwan now is moving slowly. Uh, that, 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 that's not meant to be a criticism per se, but it is an observation, and I, I do think it's factual that uh, the political leadership, and it's partly because of the local election this year, they don't want to get this wrong. Uh, and they're trying to prepare the public uh, for what we've seen in the last few days, which is you know, a rise in cases as you do reduce the quarantine requirements. We should not overreact. Uh, so some credit should go to, to Health Minister Chun, you know, at, at least insofar as the, the quote that you read that cases might peak. So he's trying to prepare the public for larger case counts. Uh, but again, he, he, he is crashing up against uh, some, some political realities, which is the government uh, doesn't want to get it wrong. And, and, and notably, the, the Gomindang, they'll, they'll just criticize for the sake of criticizing. So if the case count goes up, they'll say, oh, you did it wrong, even, even though actually uh, we're sitting here saying you know, we should be opening up and we'll just have to learn to live with an increased great, uh, case count. And of course, Brian, on Thursday, the Central Epidemic Command Centre said it's going to revise its contact tracing regulations. Yeah, that's right, though it is not abandoning contact tracing altogether. And so I think these efforts to mitigate the uh, spread of COVID-19 will continue, even as cases do increase. And you can't get to a point, eventually you do get a point in which you cannot only rely on contact tracing, or there are too many cases for that, or there are too many unknown sources of infection as COVID becomes more regularized. And that was always going to happen, so the question is just the pace at which that occurs. Um, It's interesting because whenever this comes up in the press conferences, then Chen Zhizhong gets asked, well, are you doing this because you want to run for Taipei mayor? 
And so that political consideration does come up, and the elections definitely do weigh as part of it. But I think it was, it was bound to happen at some point. Uh, and so I think then what qu- happens, what the question now is whether the cases increase at a speed that overwhelms Taiwan's hospital capacity, or whether it can occur gradually enough that it does not occur. And so the, the CECC has, for example, emphasized that the number of medium to severe cases is very low. I think only five in the past four months, that 99.7 or 99.8% of cases are light or asymptomatic. And of course, Ross, the rising cases, despite the severity of the disease in, in most individuals, has led some companies and local governments to order rapid testing for both staff and even people who enter the buildings or offices. Well, frankly, uh, that, that I think is one of those overreactions that I alluded to uh, earlier. Uh, it, this might not be medically necessary uh, or justified at, at this Stage, given the, what's frankly still a, a very low number uh, of new cases uh, compared to other, however you want to measure it, compared to other places, compared to the population nationally or just in a, in a metropolitan area like Taipei City. Uh, there, there are other obvious issues that arise there as well. Is it being administered by a health professional, uh, someone who actually knows what they're doing? Is it a waste of uh, the testing kits? Should they be safe for more urgent situations. And we still do have the contact tracing system that, again, I, I would say has, has worked for Taiwan. It, it, this, the, the concept or the technology might not work in a lot of other places, the United States being a notable example for, for a lot of re- people just uh, uh, not be comfortable with that kind of contact tracing system in, in other countries. But it's worked for Taiwan. It's worked for the people of Taiwan. There's very little opposition to having your your, your details transmitted uh, to a government database. Uh, the government was able to get it up and running quickly. And uh, generally, it works. It helps uh, track down people who came into contact with someone who tested positive. Uh, so I don't feel we're there yet for for the for this kind of rush, this unilateral decision by certain organizations, uh, which include local governments in some places around Taiwan, as well as some companies uh, to implement such a requirement, again, by uh, people who don't necessarily have the training to administer these tests. And as Mayor Ke Wenzhou of Taipei City pointed out, this is probably unnecessary. If for no other reason, it might lead to a whole bunch of false positives, which, again, would be an unnecessary use of medical resources until it's determined that actually uh, the person who was given a rapid test actually does not have covid and of course, Brian, it does, like Ross, raise concerns there about sort of random people testing people who go into offices and buildings. <laughs> and got, that, that's got disaster written all over it. Because, I mean, if you're, if you're injured with a swab of the nasal passage, for example, what's your legal recourse and comeback against the individual that did it? That's right. And so this issue is raised, for example, with the Hong Kong actor that was tested in the airport and started bleeding and posted photos on social media and there was outrage. And there could be other such incidents in society of a similar nature as well. Uh, there are some indications that some local governments do want to increase testing by a drastic amount. Uh, Jilong, if I recall, ordered 120,000 tests for a population of around 360,000. And so the claim then was, quote unquote, quasi general testing, uh, quasi universal testing. And that's an attempt by the mayor to try to seem proactive against COVID. But again, that could actually have negative outcomes if you do have overwhelmingly large amounts of false positives, people that either just have false positives or they don't know how to use it or get things wrong. And that could be dangerous to the hospital system going forward. So I think then what approach is standardized in terms of uh, standard operating practice now that we are trying to coexist with COVID? That's a question going forward. 
Now, the interesting thing about the uh, entertainer who, who uh, got a nosebleed from, from the test is the test was administered by a medical professional. <laughs> uh, we, we, yeah, it's not a criticism of medical professionals, but the risk is always there uh, of, of getting a nosebleed from a nasal swab test. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I, I refused to go to a, a radio interview earlier this week, because that, that company had implemented uh, a, a nasal testing, nasal swab test requirement for staff and, and visitors to, to their office building, uh, administered by person unknown who lacked medical training. Uh, to me, it just wasn't worth the risk. And, and frankly, I felt guilty about the, the misuse of, of a test kit for, for that purpose. Uh, so just to be, just so the listeners know, ICRT is not implemented. I'm not on the phone for because I refuse to come to ICRT today <laughs> to take uh, a nasal test. Uh, but uh, again, I, 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 I would feel it's a waste of resources and there is the safety concern uh, as well. I certainly hope we don't go in that direction. And moving in another direction now, a reported visit to Taiwan by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sparked a media frenzy here and some iry feelings in Beijing. It had been reported that Pelosi was going to arrive in Taiwan on Sunday as part of a congressional delegation trip to Asia. However, Pelosi's Deputy Chief of Staff, Drew Hamill, confirmed overnight today that the 82-year-old House Speaker has tested positive for the coronavirus and the Asia trip has been postponed. Now, Hamill did not name Taiwan as one of the destinations of that trip, but he said that Pelosi is currently asymptomatic, fully vaccinated and has received her booster shot. Media reports had been saying Pelosi's trip to Taiwan was aimed at showing support for the island in Washington amid concerns over cross-strait relations following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. She would have become the first sitting US House Speaker to have visited Taiwan since 1997 when Newt Gingrich met with President Lee Dong-wei had she come. Now, the foreign ministry here in Taiwan this morning announced that the US, the Taiwan representative office in the US capital is wishing Pelosi a speedy recovery. Brian, so big things didn't happen. That's right. And uh, it's interesting that the I, the notion of this trip got out ahead of time because I think the preferred modus operandi of the Biden administration is to announce these trips afterwards instead of grandstanding as occurred under the Trump administration. Because when you do that, that raises the possibility of China trying to retaliate in some way uh, or just grandstand, you know, military threats and air incursions and that sort of thing. Uh, and there are security concerns regarding that, uh, particularly when you have high profile individuals traveling to Taiwan. And so it was a bit surprising that news about that got out ahead of time and then we have the trip being canceled. And so it's a question if that happens again. Uh, I think also what is interesting then is it is quite high up. I mean, as, as mentioned, this has not taken place since the 1990s. And so if the U.S. wanted to have stronger shows of support through diplomatic visits to Taiwan, there are a few places to which you can escalate from there. You could send Tony Blinken over to Biden over himself, which would be, I don't know how what reactions would that be. Uh, but then, then that's a question. Then, what, what the U.S. would do after that? So, I think it is significant, though, after that Ukraine, there may be this focus on on showing that U.S. ties with Taiwan are strong. And of course, Ross, had she come this weekend, I believe it would have been on the forty third anniversary of the signing of the Taiwan Relations Act. Well, I would have to disagree with Brian on a few points. Uh, one, nothing is secret in Taiwan, so everything is is, is leaked out to the media. Uh, at some point, uh, and often at times, that, that uh, whether it's the U.S. government or the Taiwan government, don't want it to be leaked out. Uh, this was not a decision for the executive branch, although, of course, uh, Pelosi being a Democratic Party uh, politician, uh, she would have worked closely with the executive branch. But ultimately, 
In theory, and uh, as a lawyer who hopes that we follow the Constitution in the United States, the legislative branch is independent. So this really should not be viewed in in the same way as we view trips by executive branch officials. And and frankly, uh, the Biden administration, uh, over its uh, one-plus year in office, has not followed up on what the Trump administration did in its final few months in office, which was to send a cabinet-level official as well as uh, a a deputy secretary of state or assistant secretary of state, uh, I believe it was deputy uh, Keith Cratch, uh, who followed the Alex Azar, the Secretary of Health visit, uh, which occurred in August and September of 2020. So the Biden administration has not been willing to do that. And I'll also disagree with Brian on, on the options. I mean, you could send the Secretary of Health here again. You could send the Environmental Protection Administration uh, administrator here again. That that person has been here before, in fact, under the Obama administration. Uh, There's the veteran secretary, the transportation secretary. There's a number of other deputies, uh, the number two or number three at any of the cabinet level uh, U.S. federal government agencies. So there's a lot of options for executive branch. But again, this, this was the legislative branch uh, they're they're known to do these things uh, and to do them independently of the executive branch. Although again, I think Pelosi would have worked closely with the executive branch and had the White House or the State Department oppose this, then she would not be coming here. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, her trip was canceled. Of course, we wish her a speedy recovery. It's also, I think, very very unfortunate that it's been 25 years since the speaker of the House uh, has been to Taiwan. Uh, There's no excuse for that, uh, whether from the Taiwan side convincing the the relevant people in the U.S. or from the U.S. side just to make that decision, especially given the generally uh, warm relations that exist between members of Congress and the government of Taiwan. So whether the blame belongs with whoever's been the speaker over the past uh, uh, 25 years or blame is with Taiwan for not persuading the speaker, uh, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, It it would be a a politically prudent move if the Republican uh, minority leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, who hopes to be the House Speaker next year if the Republicans take the majority in the November election, uh, he might as well tweet out right now, if I'm majority leader next year, I'll definitely visit Taiwan. So, Speaker, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Leader McCarthy, if you're listening, why don't you do that? So I think it's improbable it occurs completely without coordination with the Biden administration, because oftentimes with the delegations that we've had, they have been bipartisan. That's been a point of emphasis. Uh, one notes after the Ukraine crisis, there was the de- former defense officials that were sent to Taiwan. And so I do think that there is a barter messaging uh, regarding Taiwan from the U.S. I don't think that all components of U.S. government are always on the same page, but it does seem fairly consistent, or at least that's how it appears on the outside, or the attempt is made to make it appear consistent in that way. Uh, but I think what is interesting then is particularly the back and forth regarding Democrats and Republicans on this issue. I mean, we had the Pompeo visit not before, not long before this. In his capacity as a private citizen, of course. But the speculation was then that this was geared towards election campaigning, a future presidential run, and that sort of thing. And so having the Pelosi visit not too long after that, one notes the Pompeo visit was, uh, it overshadowed the defense official visit. It was known in advance first. Uh, and second, 
I think there's the emphasis by Taiwan to uh, message, to broadcast messaging uh, vis-a-vis that visit. It's kind of a question to me then what red carpet we would have seen rolled out for Pelosi and what the message the Tide administration would have tried to send to the world in terms of its framing of the visit, uh, the messaging it put out, its statements, et cetera, around that. So we're not going to see that now, but it'll be, if, it, if this did take place in the future, I think that'd be something to keep an eye on. And Ross, do you think it will take place in the future when she's got better from the coronavirus? Or do you think she'll just simply go to Korea and Japan where she was reportedly planning to go in the first place? Uh, there, there, we can only speculate on that. Uh, there, there is a practical reality here, which is this is an election year and it's extremely difficult uh, for somebody like a, a speaker or in the case of McCarthy, the Republican uh, the minority leader, to take that much time off uh, uh, away from campaigning and, frankly, fundraising. I mean, if you go to their their political staff, uh, the people on the campaign side, not in their congressional office, and say, Kevin McCarthy or, or, or Nancy Pelosi need to spend seven days when you factor in uh, travel time, time differences, going to two or three cities. Uh, they need to spend seven days away from campaigning and fundraising. The political side people are going to say, you're absolutely out of your mind. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi is a lot more valuable to the Democrat caucus in the House doing fundraising for candidates in, in what might be a pretty brutal election here for the Democrats. And the same would apply for the Republicans, where you say you need McCarthy out there raising money in campaigning so the Republicans could retake the majority. So uh, there is a long recess. It's, it's two-plus weeks, uh, but, but the back end does span over uh, Good Friday. There, there's uh, Passover as well, and politicians like to show up at political events for that, too. Uh, so unless she, she sort of fits that in uh, on the back half of, of the upcoming recess, which even that would be very difficult, uh, then as the year goes on, as, as, as the House returns to, it, to its work, and we go into the summer recess, the summer recess is already so close to the midterm election, uh, it becomes very, very difficult. Uh, but hey, you never know. And Brian, Ross earlier alluded to the leaking of the information about the trip, but apparently this leak was leaked by a Japanese newspaper. That's right. So I had the scoop. Uh, so it's a question then how it got out. But uh, I think that it always is known at some point. The question is, do you, to what extent do you try to keep it under wraps? Uh, because I think it is true that there is the attempt to show that ties are more substantive to not announcing us ahead of time, not trumping us ahead of time, but having it occur in this sort of low-key way. And so that is interesting, but I also would not over-speculate there because it could have gotten out for various reasons. Or maybe just the newspaper is good at its job getting information. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the Taijong prison is saying that it will assess whether former President Chen Shui-bian violated his medical parole by holding a press event at which he insisted that he's innocent of charges of misusing state funds. The statement came after Chen told reporters on Thursday that prosecutors accused him of misusing 104 million NT from the State Affairs Fund for personal gain, but he went on to say that evidence shows 21 payments were made from the State Affairs Fund, totaling 133 million NT. He stressed the payments 
were used to promote confidential diplomatic missions, support pro-Taiwan democracy parades and sponsor democratic activities and groups. Chen also said the money was spent on donations for the re-election of Taiwan-friendly members of the US Congress and also to invite former US President Bill Clinton to serve as an advisor to Taiwan. Now, according to Chen, while he's willing to accept the death penalty if he's proven that he's corrupt, he went on to say that in reality he's always been a political worker who cares nothing about making money. Now, the Taichung prison says its personnel were monitoring Chen's press event and based on the information collected, it will now determine whether Chen violated the terms of his parole. Chen, of course, was released on medical parole due to ill health on January of 2015. So, while it's not the first time Chen appears to have gone off script regarding possibly violating the rules of his said medical parole, it does, Ross, seem to be a bit more brazen this time. Oh, the Ministry of Justice is just completely deficient on this. Come on, this is this has become a, a total joke, right? He's supposed to be uh, infirm, quote-unquote. He's supposed to refrain from these kinds of public activities, quote-unquote. And he's obviously neither infirm, nor is he refraining from these kinds of public activities. And clearly the Ministry of Justice, or more specifically the Minister of Justice, who reports to the Premier, Su Jun Chang, who's Chen Shui-bian's old buddy, and, and, and the Premier reports to the President, uh, President Tsai, an old buddy of former President Chen. Uh, they clearly don't have the appetite to take this on. And President uh, Tsai is under uh, pressure from uh, fans of Chen Shui-bian, both within and outside the, the party apparatus, to pardon him before her term is up. So th- there's always that possibility as well in the remaining uh, two years of her term in office. Uh, but but, but they, they're over there at the Ministry Ministry of Justice, they're just, uh, they're totally deficient on this. Uh, they really uh, don't have the appetite to say that he's violated the medical parole, and then maybe they'll issue him a warning for the press conference, uh, but, but I wouldn't expect them to, to bring him back uh, to prison either. Uh, as far as the content of what he said, yeah, the, the takeaway from there seems to be, uh, okay, this, I spent all this money uh, on some arguably valid initiatives, uh, some of them, I think, were rather dubious, and, and frankly, saying they spent money on electing U.S. politicians who are friendly to Taiwan raises the question of illegality, uh, because under U.S. law, foreigners cannot donate to political campaigns. So uh, there's a big question mark on what he was talking about there. Uh, but uh, uh, all it says is he didn't pocket this money, and you know what? There's plenty of evidence and convictions of other monies that his family did pocket uh, this money was returned to the government. Uh, assets were seized in the United States, for example. Uh, so for him to say there was no corruption, uh, you know, he, he's really obfuscating the fact that uh, in, in various examples, uh, and, you know, the, the, the evidence and the convictions and the case record are, are very detailed, uh, there was corruption involving his family, even if it didn't involve this particular pile of money that he was uh, documenting how it was spent. Yeah, so Chen has maintained an active uh, social presence on uh, social media. Uh, he's been quite public about his views. Uh, he's still intent on clearing his good name. And so it is true then that the government could actually take action against him uh, on the auspices under which he was released from jail on parole. And so, for example, just the, the uh, 
press conference itself, if the, the if the relevant law enforcement officials had decided to really step in, they w- could have done so because they knew about it ahead of time. The media was aware of it ahead of time and so forth uh, with regards to his social media presence, which sometimes he maintains under the name of his dog, because then it's not him talking, quote unquote. Uh, that could also be stopped if they had really wanted to. And so that is the thing. It'd be politically inexpedient for the Tide administration to put Chen back in jail. That would upset the deep greens uh, who are already have an axe to grind against Tai in many ways and sometimes are quite loyal to Chen Shabian. Uh, and, and so that's not an issue that they want to encounter at present. I think that particularly uh, as we approach the next presidential election, Chen is trying to test the waters. I think there's probably some antsiness on his part who the next president will be and how, what their stances on this would be. I mean, with the DPP president, obviously, they'd be more... Uh, indisposed, they would probably not want to put him back in jail. But then there's a question of who comes next. And so I do think actually these attempts by Chen to influence current politics will continue, and they might increase as time goes on, because there's his own concern about his own fate, uh, but then there's also potentially his attempt to influence ongoing politics in order to sway things in, in his own political views. Uh, one sees this from Ma Ying-tio as well, in terms of foreign presidents, that he is an active figure in public life. And so Chen watching this might also want to attempt the same. And Ross, how much sway do you think Chen Shui-bian actually has? Well, yeah, he still maintains a core group of supporters. Uh, some of them, I think, over time have been willing to uh, forgive or look past uh, the very, very serious corruption that occurred during his administration. Again, if it wasn't involving this particular pool of money that he was discussing yesterday, uh, we know that uh, money was paid by corporate or uh, corporates for, for favorable government uh, policy decisions. Uh, so, uh, people still think of him as as the guy who is willing to be very forthright about Taiwan status uh, compared to uh, the style of uh, current President Tsai. Uh, he, he's just more vociferous, uh, a bit more energy, a totally different kind of personality, uh, especially when it came to Taiwan identity issues, and uh, some people look fondly at that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, Lai Qingde, William Lai, challenged President Tsai in a party primary in 2019 in advance of the 2020 election. He ultimately lost, uh, but he was representing uh, the the people within the party or the voters, the party voters, uh, supporters, factions, however you want to describe it, uh, that wanted someone who's, who's more aggressive, more outspoken. Uh, not, and doesn't uh, refrain from using the, that kind of language that we see in President Chen uh, over the past uh, few decades. Uh, so he's, he's relevant, uh, and uh, if he gets a full pardon, he'll be even more relevant, <laughs> I guess, because he'd probably be out there campaigning uh, for the next DPV presidential candidate if he did get a pardon in advance of the election. So uh, I'll emphasize against that. That's definitely something to watch out for. And Brian, what about young voters? I mean, did, I mean, some of them are maybe twenty now. They would have no memory of Chen. How do you think he sits with them? So this is actually another really fascinating thing, and it really makes me think about how much politics has changed since the Chen administration. Because I mentioned, I alluded to his social media presence earlier, and it has very little following. Uh, to an extent that I'm actually a little bit surprised for a former president that so little people follow him, even if it is under the name of his dog or things like that. And so then his style of political campaigning has not really transitioned to the internet age. Uh, I mean, if he was actually able to kind of fully be out there, if he was pardoned and so forth, I wonder if that would change. But part of me thinks actually not. Uh, just there doesn't seem to be often a kind of social media savvy uh, with regards to that. I mean, there are people that he's probably working with that could have the professional knowledge to run this sort of thing. But I'm not really 
actually seeing that. And so that is actually quite interesting itself. But I do think that he does com uh, command that respect from DPP, uh, some elders, and uh, Deep Greens, obviously, in particular. And some people are influential, but that is not young people. They, he does not have traction among young people in that way. You know, the obvious solution would be for President Chen to get on uh, former President Trump's new social media platform, <laughs> Social, and uh, pick up a lot of followers there. And there's been some news as we've been recording today's show, that being the death of noted democracy activist Peng Ming Min at the age of 98. Of course, he was arrested for sedition in 1964 for printing a manifesto advocating democracy in Taiwan. He then managed to escape to Sweden before taking a post as a university teacher in the United States. And after 22 years in exile, he returned to become the DPP's first ever presidential candidate in Taiwan's first ever direct presidential election in 1990. 96. So, Ross, of course, a great loss to Taiwan's democracy movement there. Uh, certainly, and you covered some of the highlights of his extraordinary career. Uh, but, but even before uh, his manifesto uh, and, and his dramatic escape, uh, he was known as, or had already developed a reputation as a brilliant young scholar uh, with uh, very bright prospects uh, as a political scientist had he remained uh, uh, on campus and not, not involved in advocacy uh, that his dramatic escape uh, and subsequently his long period uh, in the United States of advocacy where he had a very high profile co-founder of Foremost in Association for Public Affairs a uh, long time uh, advocacy organization during the Marshall era for democratization of Taiwan, uh, then for Taiwan's autonomy or independence as well, um, testified in front of Congress. And then he came back and uh, was the DPP's candidate in, in the first direct presidential election in 1996. Now, they got crushed. Uh, Lee Donghui and Lian Zhan won over 50% of the vote. And Peng Mingmin and his running mate, uh, Francis Xie Changping, only had uh, in the low 20s. Uh, but uh, he was willing to step forward and, and uh, play his part in, in having that first direct presidential election at a time when a lot of people were worried about the response from China, and China did threaten Taiwan at the time, the missile tests around the time of the presidential election, uh, and, and people were concerned about what the implications would be of, of a transition of power. But you know what? They got crushed, and four years later, it did happen with President Chen's election in 2000, and, and Peng served as a uh, advisor to, to Chen for a period of time during Chen's administration and remain active into his old age, uh, writing, speaking, uh, and participating in, in the cause. And, you know, that, that, that's what democracy is about. And what about the funeral arrangements? Uh, that, that, that remains to be seen, depending on what his wishes are, or what the families are, or whether or not a, a, a burial or a cremation, these kinds of activities, how public uh, they would be. But I would still expect there to be you know, significant memorial services, and we could look to the, the passing of Lee Dong Hoi in 2020 as an example of how uh, independence advocates, the DPP, and, and other uh, similar organizations coalesce at a time like this, you know, the death of someone very important to their cause, and what kind of memorialization activities uh, occur. Uh, so it'll be inherently political. Yeah, that, that's unavoidable. We are talking about someone who was involved in, in politics uh, and for a very specific cause over many, many decades. So any kind of memorial service, uh, I would certainly expect uh, the president and the premier, uh, these kinds of very significant DPP personalities to attend. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction from Gomindong politicians as well. Again, we could look to reference to the death of uh, Lee Dong Hoi in 2020, and then you know, they kind of said through, through very gritty teeth, uh, 
said said on his passing condolences, but you know we kind of disagreed with him eventually on just about everything. So I'd expect this, this kind of struggle from, from Guomindang politicians how to respond to Peng's death. And what about Peng's legacy? Well, that, that, that's a great question as well, because uh, a criticism is often made that as the years go by, younger people are, are not familiar with the history, and it, or they're not familiar with the personalities who are involved. And you, know, you could also say Taiwan doesn't really do a good job with that, it doesn't do a good job educating younger people, for example, about who these people were. The current government has tried to make some some effort, some change or improvement in this regard, you know, transitional justice commission uh, being one example. But unfortunately, those things often get uh, politicized as well and get accused of being uh, really vehicles to help the government uh, win the next election and whatever initiatives come out uh, of, of, of the government uh, or transitional justice commission, uh, educational changes to include more things in the curriculum about this history. Uh, again, it is often accused of being for purposes of, of, of the next election. Uh, but, but I think it's a fair criticism to say that young people, even though they vote overwhelmingly for the DPP in the last election, uh, voted overwhelmingly for President Tsai in 2020. We're looking at events in Hong Kong, for example, in the months preceding the, the election. But uh, do they really know the history and are the personalities uh, prominent in, in, in the minds of uh, younger generations of Taiwanese about you know, the sacrifices that some of these people made to bring about democracy in Taiwan? I think as time goes by, unfortunately, uh, the role of people such as Peng really uh, is not as prominent as it should. Moving on now, the Constitutional Court has struck down a legal clause on Indigenous status. The court ruled last Friday that a legal provision granting Indigenous status to individuals with one Indigenous and one non-Indigenous parent based strictly on their name is unconstitutional. The court's focus was on Article 4, Paragraph 2 of the Status Act for Indigenous Peoples. That article states that children of intermarriages between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples taking the surname of the Indigenous father or mother or using a traditional Indigenous person's name shall acquire Indigenous peoples' status. Now, according to the court, it ruled to strike down the clause because it violated the Constitution's intention to protect indigenous people's rights to personal identity and guarantee racial equality. The court has now ordered the government to amend the law within two years and stipulated that if the deadline is not met, people in such situations could automatically obtain indigenous identity and register their indigenous status. And now an estimated 95,000 people here in Taiwan will be eligible to declare indigenous status under such circumstances. Now the court ruling came after it took up the case involving a seven-year-old girl whose mother was a Truku person and whose father was a non-Indigenous person. Now, the father tried to register his daughter's Indigenous status at the Nangang Household Registration Office, but that request was rejected because the girl used the father's Chinese surname, therefore did not comply with the provision in question in the Status Act for Indigenous Peoples. So, Ross, this all seems a bit convoluted, really, but obviously a good thing for Indigenous Peoples. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you described both parts accurately. It's a bit convoluted, but it's a, it's a good outcome. I, I can't imagine uh, who, who would oppose this. Well, other than the government. <laughs> the, the government took the opposite position. The Council of Indigenous People, to get a, as we were talking about earlier, they report 
up to the cabinet, uh, ultimately reports to the president. And oh, by the way, the premier, uh, the cabinet, you know, who eats the cabinet, and the president, they're both lawyers. Uh, so they, they would have an understanding of these issues uh, intimately as well. Uh, so the government opposed it. I think most of us looking at this from the outside would say, this makes sense. Well, why are you being so so obstinate? Uh, so so there's an issue, or two issues I think, which are quite interesting here. Is you have the wording of the law, and the original wording of the law is, is what what the court said is you know, that that's just no good. It's unfair. We're we're tossing it out. You got to revise the law within two years. The other aspect is just culturally how how often or typically these things are looked at through the lens of the father. And I think a lot of listeners would, would certainly know, be familiar with this. You, know, you ask somebody if they are uh, 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 Hokkien or a Hakka uh, or a Waishengren or a Benchengren, and they always just go by the father, right? It doesn't matter if, if the mother uh, is something else, right? People are just uh, conditioned here uh, and... and in Chinese societies, even though we're not talking about uh, Chinese people, in, in this case, we're talking about uh, indigenous persons. Uh, but but uh, the people who wrote the laws are, for the most part, ethnically Chinese. Uh, so so that it's just the the lens through which people view these issues, and uh, I think it's a positive thing that in 2022 we're finally getting away from that. So it's interesting because it's led to a split within uh, some indigenous groups, actually, regarding uh, this law and whether they should view it as a positive development. So particularly for people who are mixed race, for example, this is viewed as opening the uh, scope of indigeneity, who is eligible to qualify. You do have members of families, for example, in which some people are considered indigenous and some people are not by the law. And that creates issues and complications and some control, cultural confusion. Uh, but then, as you mentioned, just from the government side, there has been some uh, criticism of this. Uh, Kosio Taka, the presidential office spokesperson in her own private capacity, was critical of this because of the claim then that taking on an indigenous name and giving up a kind of last name, Han last name, to qualify for the status is a sign of a kind of a, a price for entry to the status. Uh, there are concerns, for example, that opening up the scope of uh, uh, more people qualifying for indigenous status could lead to resource grabs and uh, attempts to kind of grab land and so forth. So I think this will particularly lead to a split, uh, I think particularly between younger activists, for example, who may be mixed race and so forth, uh, but view themselves as indigenous and those that are maybe close to the government. Because the claim that uh, Kosu Yutaka made was that the current laws were made through consultation with indigenous, and that's why they're there. And this was formulated by indigenous legislators. Whereas then from the younger activists, uh, the claim was then that this was not the case, actually, that these laws were written by Han people without consultation with indigenous communities. And so I think there will be contestation around that, particularly maybe not now necessarily, uh, but particularly as the two-year deadline approach, as I think approaches, as I often think is the case with these uh, sort of decisions. And what about double-barreled surnames, Brian? Could the uh, government say, well, you could have a double-barreled surname? Yeah, that's combination, I guess. I mean, uh, there's also there's still the continued issue of uh, indigenous names and, and if they can be registered in IDs and that sort of thing. So this also opens up that kind of forms. Forget just IDs. How about websites? Double-barreled surnames. Uh, you know, trying to enter those on websites. I think a lot of listeners would have the experience, especially those in the foreign community, of how many corporate websites or government websites have, have taken uh, a, 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 just a dreadfully long amount of time to be able to accommodate uh, foreign names or, or foreign ID numbers. So uh, I, I would say anyone who, who's thinking of going in that direction better think twice 
uh, about that. But I, I really take exception to, to what uh, the, the spokeswoman said, uh, and uh, I don't buy the acting in her private capacity because it's very hard to separate these things, no matter what disclaimer she puts on it. Uh, just because somebody changed their name uh, should not really disqualify, or, or in many cases, it wasn't their decision. Their parents gave them their name, and they have decided not to revise that. They've decided to continue with their Han surname uh, rather than revise it to, to an indigenous person's surname. I, that really should not be a barometer. I mean, look, I mean, the United States, for example, it's an immigrant society when a lot of people came through Ellis Island 125 years ago. The immigration officer couldn't pronounce their name from Italy or Eastern Europe, uh, and they gave them an Americanized name on the spot. That doesn't make them less Italian or ethnically Italian or Polish or Russian or, or Jewish, uh, but the immigration officer chopped their name in half and changed their name uh, for, you know, from something with 16 letters and a lot of vowels that ended in a Y or an I to Smith. Uh, but but, but we, don't, we don't consider them any less uh, worthy of claiming to be part of that ethnic group. So I, I don't think uh, the name should be a barometer. If somebody is of, of mixed heritage, then they should be entitled to, to the benefits that, uh, as a society, Taiwan has, has decided certain benefits, whether it's uh, certain types of uh, financial benefits, uh, school places, for example. Uh, if the if society has decided that these benefits are available to people who, who have ethnic uh, indigenous heritage, then we shouldn't use the name as the barometer. Uh, you know, if you want to really get into details and say, well, somebody's only like one-eighth or one-sixteenth, Maybe we could look at that, but but certainly people who are, who, who are dual parents, uh, you know, fifty can can legitimately claim fifty percent. We we really shouldn't discriminate based on their their name choice. And before we go this week, the Council of Agriculture this past weekend announced the launch of a new pet management division. According to the council, the division will be responsible for setting out regulations for the pet industry as well as pet ownership and welfare. Agriculture Minister Chen Ji Jong says around two and a half million pet cats and dogs are currently in Taiwan at the moment, and the yearly output value of the domestic pet industry now stands at over 500 million NT. And the pet management division, he says, has been established as the government is seeking to amend the animal protection. Protection Act, and those amendments are aimed at strengthening government oversight of the pet industry and guaranteeing the welfare of all types of pets. But apparently, Ross, they actually only have six full-time employees in this pet division. Well, this is this is uh, one. It's a response to the cat smuggling incident, in which uh, unfortunately a number of cats were put down uh, after they 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 were discovered uh, being smuggled. There 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 was just not. Uh, a process in the government's view to uh, quarantine them and put them up for adoption. Uh, uh, but, but ultimately, this, at this stage, this is just shuffling around you know, pre-existing uh, personnel and, and agencies and names and where they sat on the org chart. You know, maybe in the future they'll, they'll upgrade this even more, they'll add more personnel. Again, for the most part, this is just shuffling around existing resources, and it's a response to some of these past incidents. And we have to keep in mind that uh, although for now the, the EPP, both the government as well as the legislative majority, uh, are, are not in favor of it. But, but for political purposes, the Kuomintang and the Taiwan People's Party and the New Power Party, they've actually supported putting animal uh, protection into the Constitution. 
which in my own opinion as a lawyer I think is somewhat unusual, notwithstanding that some countries uh, do have uh, uh, similar provisions. Uh, so this is also very much about politics. As you noted, uh, pet ownership is, is very popular here. So there, there is a constituency of pet owners that, uh, pardon the pun, uh, the politicians have to pander to. That yeah, that's right. Pander, not panda. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, just it is an attempt for electoral means, obviously. I think uh, to avoid controversy, uh, to try to draw votes from pet owners, etc. And so, taking a stand on animal rights, particularly dogs and cats, is something that's popular. And I think the uh, Tsai administration is trying to avoid the outcry that occurred last time. Uh, what's interesting is that this seems very focused on dogs and cats in particular, which is often a point of critique from animal rights groups that a lot of what is discussed by politicians or by the public writ large is very focused on that demographic of animals in particular. And so, for example, there were, I believe, uh, Indonesia incidents of chinchillas at one point, which was a similarly high amount to the number of cats, but that not provoke a public outcry in the same way. Uh, and so I think with regards to this resuffling personnel, um, just saying that you'll emphasize registration of animals. I mean, there are also like much more deeper structural roots. You can see the amount of pets in pet shops that are in tiny cages and that sort of thing. But it's harder to push for action there because that is a business. They are a demographic. Uh, those business owners will be unhappy. And so I think this this the question then is, is it just for a stunt, really, for the public? And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.